If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies? Or it is God who justifies? Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercessions for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for you, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we look at this scripture, we're going to get academic here for just a second. I want to look at um, this word persuaded that we see in verse 38. This word persuaded in the Greek, there can be like a verb tense and also a mood to a word. And so the verb tense in this case of persuaded is this um, verb tense of perfect. It describes a completed action that occurred in the past but produced a state of being that exists in the present. This focuses not on the importance of the past, but it focuses on the important importance of the present. So as I kind of stumble through that definition, the point of this perfect tense in the Greek is that Paul's talking about he was persuaded by something that happened to him in the past, but this persuading wasn't just on a one-time event. Of, oh man, that was really awesome that happened, and because this one thing happened, I'm convinced of the love of God. But it started when Paul was down to Damascus Road, he got blinded by the resurrected Christ, and this changed this guy's life. He was transformed. But after that transforming moment, there was a continued persuading of Paul from that day all the way to the present time where he's writing this, of he's saying, I'm persuaded not just what happened in the past, but I'm persuaded by what God's love is doing to me in the present. That God's love has changed me in a way that's who I am now, not just one event that I can hang my hat on. But this persuading was not something he was interested in, but it was something he was totally convinced because of God's effect on him in the past, but also God's effect on him in the present. And the second part of this word is it's in, in the mood of, it's called indicative. And this means the writer portrays something as real and active. It's not a mystical thing. It's not a lofty goal that maybe we could attain to. But Paul, when he's dem or, uh, explaining the love of God here in Romans 8, he's saying this is something that's real. It's not something like, oh man, the love of God is kind of beyond our understanding, and maybe if we kind of stumble upon it and make us feel good. He's, he's saying this overcoming, being more than conquerors, um, this height or depth that cannot be explained is something that this love of God can be tangible, and this love of God can be in us. So when we talk about the love of God being better than advertised, the point of the title is a lot of times we know the words of God's love, but Paul's point in being persuaded that this is true is that he's experienced the love of God. It's more than being excited, but it's something that's in his heart, it's in his spirit. As we look at Ephesians 5, we're going to find that the love of God is only possible by union with Jesus Christ himself. We're going to focus on the consummation and intimacy aspect of marriage. So up to this point, for those of you who've been with us, we have talked about the functionality of marriage. 
that marriage has a man and a woman. They're totally different, um, but yet they come together for a purpose, and they, they have different functions, but ultimately the same purpose. We also talked about point number two of submission, of how important submission is, and that submission within marriage and submission just amongst the body of Christ, really submission in general, is an act of the Spirit that even displays God's wisdom, the principalities, and the angels, and the powers. We've also talked about God's love, his agape love that he's given us. It's greater than any human love we could ever muster up. And we've seen that all these points, whether it's submission, whether it's the functionality of God's love, or whether it's um, the agape love, all of this is working for God's purpose in marriage. And God's purpose in marriage is so much bigger than just you and I, you know, and who we're married to. That's important. But ultimately, God's purpose in marriage was a demonstration of the gospel and a demonstration of his character to the world and to the angels. So when you look today, we're going to read in Ephesians 5, 28 to 32. We're focusing on verses 30 and 31, but to give a little context of where we're at. It says, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Verse 32, I remember the first time I was ever reading, this kind of throws you off, because this whole time you're talking about man and woman, and you're talking about marriage. But then he says in verse 32, this is a great mystery, but he's not really talking about people. So I'm speaking to you concerning Christ and his church. As we saw man and woman become one, and Johnny hit on this last week, that a man cannot have enmity or anger or hatred toward his wife, because ultimately that wife has become part of him. That they are bone of each other's bone, and flesh of each other's flesh, and no man would ever hate himself. So how can a man hate or have enmity against his wife because they are one person? But we're seeing that, that Paul is saying to the point Yes, it's to give us direction in marriage, but the point isn't necessarily that. But the point is that the church of Christ has become part of him, that we are now bone of his bone and we are flesh of his flesh, which means what? That when we are truly unified with Christ, which we're going to get to later on, when we are truly unified with him, he can do nothing but love us because we become part of him. That everything he does is honestly and genuinely for our good because we are his bride and we become bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying. And he's first praying for his disciples. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is a crazy statement because Jesus, you know, he's praying for us. He says he's praying for the disciples then, and they're about to go up. But he says that I pray for those who will believe because of the apostles' word. That us today in Fort Collins, Colorado, are a byproduct of what these original 12, 11 witnesses did for Jesus Christ. They went out and shared the gospel, and eventually it made its way out to us. And Jesus himself is praying for us in this scripture. And he says that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the the world may believe that you sent me. This is... I know this is like straightforward, but I've been just praying on this all week of what does it really mean that we can be one with each other, but also one with the Father in the same way Jesus is one with the Father. 
I mean, it's been blowing my mind that in John 14, it says that he wants to make his home in us. What does it really mean that Christ is in us and we are in him? And not only that, but as this union with Christ occurs, it says that by our love for one another, by our oneness, our unity with one another, it says that all may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That the greatest evangelism tool of all time is the unity and the love of the church for one another. That that should be the display. That should be the power coming from the church is that not only are we one with one another, but we are actually one. We are unified with Jesus Christ that he has made his home in us. And for the believer, this should be such an encouraging thing, not just to know that Christ is in us, but that that would be the reality of who we are, that when times are hard, when we are confused, that it's not that we have to reach far and hope that God hears us somewhere, somehow, but that we can search for God because he's in us. It's his very spirit that rose Christ and that has made his home in our hearts. And something that, I don't know if it is understandable completely, but all week just praying has, has really just, just opened my heart and, and humbled me to really think of the gift that that is, that God would not just be somewhere, somewhere far off, that we would come to church and we could worship him together, but that each one of us he would make his home in us, and together, that in unity, that we would be his tool to reach the world. And as we'll see later, that we would be his tool even to teach the angels and the demons things about him that they would ever, that they would otherwise not know. So we go back to Ephesians 5, 28 through 32. He's talking about this oneness and intimacy in marriage between a man and a woman, but also intimacy and oneness between Christ and his church. In this this quotation, he says, for we are members of his body, his flesh and his bones, and this leaving and cleaving in verse 30 and 31. These are quotes from Genesis chapter 2. So we want to know what this is really saying. We got to go back to Genesis 2. And in Genesis 2, we're going to see a couple, three really cool things that Jesus fulfilled through himself in the church, the very thing he was asking Adam and Eve to fulfill in marriage. This was a prototype. It was a shadow of what Christ would do with us as his church. So the first thing that he talks about in verse 18 says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. There's only one thing in all of creation God said was not good, and that was this. Everything he made, he said it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. But the man was alone, he didn't have a helper, he said it wasn't good. And that Eve arriving in the scene, on the scene with Adam to complete him, for God's glory is the same thing that happened when the church came on along the scene and was unified with Christ to complete God's purpose. We've been talking about in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, that the purpose of the church, it says, the intent of the church is that we would make the manifold wisdom of God known to the principalities and the powers. It's kind of, you can kind of read over that scripture and not think about it that much, but that's crazy because he's saying through the church, us, we would make things about God known to the angels who are in his presence all the time. That they're greater than us, they're stronger than us, but yet there's something about what God's doing to his church that's a mystery to the world and a mystery to the angels. And the reason why this is true, I want you guys to think about this for a second, that when Satan sinned against God and he was cast out of heaven, he was cast down with the demons, that Jesus, the Father, sent no help for them. He sent no Savior for them. That when he judged them, it was over. That there was no opportunity for them to go back to heaven. There was no opportunity for them to repent. That that judgment was final. Spoken of in, in Jude, spoken of in Ezekiel. 
But yet with us, with mankind, God created and we rebelled against him. And God sent a Savior. That God sent Jesus Christ. And he could have left us out to dry, kind of like he did with the fallen angels. He could have done the same thing, but he didn't. And he sent Jesus Christ so what? Mankind could be redeemed. And the whole world, including the angels and the demons, could see God's grace poured out on something for the first time. They knew his power. They knew his sovereignty. They knew his holiness. But they didn't know his grace. They didn't know his love. And through what Christ has done in the church, the church completes what Christ did on the cross by being the vessel of God's grace, being the vessel of his love. So man sees man redeemed and it blows his mind. I know you guys, when you were um, encountered Christ, there's probably people who are amazed. Man, they, God can even say them. God can even say them. That we see God save people, change people, that's amazing to us. But it's even more amazing to the angels because they know how holy God is, they know how wicked man is, but yet they've seen God redeem man and make mankind the church, his bride, for him to love, for eternity. The second thing that happens with Adam and Eve that Christ fulfilled is in verse 21, it says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. In verses 21 and 22, we see God made Eve right out of Adam. This explanation is a lot shorter, but God made the church right out of Christ. That without Christ, without Christ living, dying, and being resurrected from the dead, the Holy Spirit could never be given to the church. But out of Christ's life came the church. That just like God made Eve out of Adam, out of his rib, he's made the church out of Christ's physical life, that we can now represent him and be one with him in union. And the last one, which we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about today, is in verse 23 and 24. It says, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That just like God created intimacy for man and woman in his consummation and marriage, that ultimately the church, in union with Christ, which we're going to look at today, would become one, that we would become bone of his bone, and we would become flesh of his flesh, just like Ephesians 5 is talking about. And when we experience this union, again, it's way better than any advertisement. It's way better than any homework card. It's way better than any encouragement that that union with Christ, the Spirit of God, comes inside of us. And it's better than words can express. It's better than thoughts can express. It's more powerful than anything else in the universe is the love of God. So how did Jesus fulfill verse 24? Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We're going to answer this in a second, but I want to go to 1 John 4.10 as a foundation of God's love, because we've been talking about God's love a lot. And if someone were to ask you, how, can, how would you explain God's love? 1 John 4.10 is a great scripture to go to because God is explaining his love to us. He's saying, and this is love. So we're about to find out what is love, in what is love. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. That first and foremost, again, the amazement to the angels was not that we first loved God, that he loved us. We had nothing to offer God. What did, what did we have that God didn't already have? Nothing, that he has everything, that he is self-sufficient in himself. He didn't need us, but he wanted us. And the amazing thing about God's love is the foundation of its grace. There was nothing we could do. There was nothing we could say. There's no works that we could conjure up. That God loved us because he wanted to love us. He loved us because he made us in his likeness and his image. 
And we didn't love him first, but he first reached out to us before we ever reached out to him. But the second part of this, it says that he sent his son. And the amazing thing about this is in order for a man to be married to a woman, it says he has to leave his father and mother and, be, and cleave to his wife, that Jesus left the Father, he was sent from heaven, and he had to leave his Father in order to redeem the church, in order to redeem his bride. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, again, the foundation is his grace, that though, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And for mankind, I know from experience, it's hard to humble ourselves. When we know that we maybe deserve something, we know we have something, it's hard to give that up. Especially if we feel like someone may not deserve it. Maybe they don't deserve our forgiveness. Maybe they don't deserve, we've given them money every month for the last five months, and even a little bit more, they don't deserve it. Whatever. It's hard for us to give that up. But when we look at what Jesus did, he had everything. Jesus was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He had all riches, he had all power, he had all authority. But Jesus laid down all of that, and he became poor for our sake. That Jesus left the wealth of the Father and became a man. And in Philippians 2, it says he was a bondservant. That Jesus came not to be, not to serve, but to be served. But the first thing Jesus had to do was he had to leave his Father so that what he could cleave to his bride. But before he could cleave to the bride, he had to become the propitiation for our sins. And I don't know if this word is used anywhere else but the Bible, but propitiation just means substitute or payment. It's a substitutionary payment. And so what happened on the cross. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the wage of something means we've earned it, that we've worked for it. And because of our sin, we've earned a physical death, but also a spiritual death, that it would take us eternity to pay God our sin. But in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, for he made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, the Father made Jesus Christ the very sin that you and I deserve. That when Christ went to the cross, he didn't just die and beg, I died, now everyone's forgiven. But there was a payment that Luke Warden owed Jesus Christ by the wages of my personal sin. And when Christ was on the cross, see, that was literally imputed to him. That's what sub, this propitiation means, that the sin that was mine was literally put into Christ. And that the payment I would have to pay by the wrath of God, Jesus paid for me, that Jesus paid for you. That it wasn't just a vague death, but Jesus had to pay for your personal sin. And Christ, again, did that going to the cross, knowing our sinfulness, knowing our hardness of heart, knowing our pride, knowing that many of us would reject him, but he went to the cross anyways. And as he was crushing the wrath of God, we could now be forgiven. But the amazing thing about this scripture is he says it's for a purpose. That he, it doesn't say he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we could go to heaven. Or that we could not go to hell. It's not what he says. He says that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now why is that so important? Why is it so important that we become the righteousness of God? Because Jesus can't unify himself to something that's not righteous. That before Christ could plead to us his bride, he had to make us the very righteousness of God. And that's what he did. He wiped your slate completely clean so that you could become the righteousness of God. That the Holy Spirit could make his home in you. And that God could become bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh. And that now that we are the righteousness of Christ, we can truly have union with him. And when we have union with him, 
we can experience his love. Not just the advertising thing on TV, but what happens in our very spirit in our, in our hearts. The reason, too, I want to look at these scriptures, especially with, with 1 John, is sometimes we can begin to, to define God's love our own way. And we all know in this room, life isn't easy, that things that cause suffering, things that cause disappointment, things that cause disturbance are to happen in our lives. And when we define God's love by how we want to define it, by whether it's blessings, by whether it's feelings, by what it's what we see, we start to get really disappointed, really discouraged. And really, we come to two conclusions. One conclusion is that there's something wrong with us, and we just messed up God's love, and we must just be doing something terribly wrong. Or two, there's something wrong with God, His love isn't really what we thought it was. But when we come back to the foundation of Christ's love, of what He did on the cross that ends up making us the righteousness of God, and like Paul says, I've been persuaded, not just because of what Christ did then, but because of what Christ is still doing in me now. One thing I want to challenge the, the body with, which I mentioned in first service and forgot, so you guys get the fresh challenge. But challenge you to pray on this scripture every day. So 2 Corinthians 5 21. Just to pray and think about the scripture. Been literally doing this for about six months now, every day, praying on what it really means that he who knew no sin became sin. I mean, what a thought. God in heaven becomes a man, becomes sin, is crushed under the wrath of God, so that I can become, not just say, the righteousness of God. And I'll tell you, I, I can't quantify in like language what I learned, but in my spirit, I learned so much about what it means that Christ became sin for us. And I'll tell you what, this next part we talk about, of denying ourselves, picking up our cross, being crucified with Christ, it becomes easier when this starts to soak, soak into our heart, when, when he who knew no sin, that love is shown in our hearts, man, that not ourselves isn't that bad because we're getting him. We're getting his love. We're understanding his righteousness. So how do we partake in intimacy? How do we actually partake in this union? Romans 6, 5 through 11 tells us how are we unified with Christ. It says this, For if we have been United together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we die with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we go back to Jesus leaving and cleaving with his father, coming for his bride. When you think about marriage, especially those of you who are married, not only does the father have to, or not only does the son have to leave his father, but the bride has to leave her family too in order to really become one. It would have been weird that when I, if, when I proposed to, to Sarah that in order to be married, I had to come under her dad's authority and her parents' authority and become um, an Owens before we could be married. That just it wouldn't make sense. Not that it would be terrible, but just wouldn't have made sense for that to happen. There has to be a leaving of the wife and a leaving of the husband so that we could become one flesh, start our own family, and, there, and, and so on and so forth. That Jesus, when we look, he did this that we saw 
in, in 1 John. We see what he did in 2 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 8. But there comes a part where we have to leave the things of the world. That we cannot cleave to Christ and be married to the world at the same time. There has to be a leaving of what we were born into, born into sin, and a and uniting and cleaving to who Christ is. And this happens being crucified with Christ. And again, like we talked about earlier, it's a privilege. So when we see what Jesus did, man, our part, Jesus left heavenly riches to become poor. We get to leave the death and the evilness of sin for Christ. I mean, what a great exchange for us. That this crucifixion for Christ, I know crucifixion is a strong word, but it, it shouldn't scare us because we're getting rid of or crucifying the flesh. Even though it may be painful, it's definitely worth it. And there's no way to experience the life of Christ without experiencing the death of Christ that we see in Romans 6. But when we do, this is where that union happens. This is where the love of Christ comes into our heart and begins to change us. And it becomes more than an advertisement. becomes more than something we can quote in our head. But it's alive in our spirit. When we talk about being crucified with Christ, I know something I've been putting on as well, is what does that crucifixion look like for us? What has it looked like in the past? That you know, no one could get crucified and not know it. I mean, it's something you know that happened to you. I was thinking about when people were, I mean, were literally crucified, a lot of Christians early on in the church, that you could have asked someone, hey, were you crucified and then not know it? That this crucifixion was very painful. And for us as believers in Christ, this crucifixion, it is in the cost of suffering. Because there is part of us that, that still holds on to the flesh. But the second reason we would know why we would be crucified is because in this crucifixion, we get the love of God. It's not just about dying, so we die and we suffer, and we're the you know, poor Christians who are suffering for Christ. But we suffer and we die to ourselves for the purpose of the love of Christ being birthed and put into our heart. And this transformation that comes by the love of God is something that we cannot miss. So we begin to wrap up for today. I just want to challenge us with this. I just believe, and myself included, that we miss the fullness of God's love. We miss this agape love so often because Jesus, he leads us to the cross. And he leads us this time to be crucified with him. But once we get there, our flesh is screaming, we're, we're disappointed, we're suffering, and we start to spend all of our time getting off the cross instead of embracing the suffering that's pulling away from our sin that's going to lead us into this with Christ. And I've heard this, I've thought this myself, that if I was really in the will of God, why would there be this suffering? If I was really in the will of God, why would this be happening to me? Because I was in the will of God, it's got to look better than this. But look at Jesus. Jesus is smack dab, bullseye target in the will of God. And he's being crushed on the cross. And he's right where God wants him to be, but yet he's sweating blood in the garden. But oftentimes, we are exactly where God wants us to be, and it's suffering, and it's hard. But yet that's what's bringing us this union with Christ. And in the sufferings of Christ, we'll experience the comfort and the love of God in a way that we never have. That, you know, Jesus says that he did do, didn't do anything that he didn't see the Father doing. I mean, what if we could say that? But we can't, we can't get to that point of intimacy with Christ without this crucifixion of the flesh. But in being crucified with Christ, that's where this bone of this bone flesh, this flesh comes in. That when once we've been crucified with Christ, we've been born into his life, there's no enmity between us and God. That Colossians says that before we're saved, there's enmity, that there's, there's friction between us and God. 
But when we have been born again by his spirit, there's no more enemy left. Just like a husband or wife. A husband would never hate his own flesh, would never hate his wife. In the same way, Christ can't hate us, can't have enmity towards us, can't have anger towards us, can't be mad at us because we have become part of his own body. We become the bone of his bone and the flesh of his flesh. But this requires faith. We have to be able to believe that when it doesn't look like that. We have to believe that when it doesn't feel like that. Not because of self-help or, or self-talk, but because we know what he's done on the cross. We know what he sacrificed. If he was willing to do that, why would he not, why would he not be willing to give us all things now? Which is what Romans 8 um, says. So as we wrap up and we get ready for our offering, I want to close with this scripture. Romans 8, 28. It says, And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This is a scripture I know everybody in this room that we've heard this. But when we just get done studying what we've studied about becoming bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, this is true. That no matter how, if you are in the middle of suffering or disappointment and confusion right now, and you are connected to Christ, there's a 100% chance he's using this suffering for your good to know him and to love him. He couldn't be doing anything else with your circumstance. That when we really become part of him, we have this union, this intimacy with Christ. All things truly do work for our good because of God's love for us and because now we love him. So as we begin to wrap up, we can bring forward um, the offering. Father, we thank you so much for, the, for what you've done for us. Jesus, we thank you that you are willing to become poor, Father, that we could become rich. God, what a small thing to give you our earthly things, Father, for an eternal reward. God, so I just pray, Lord, that, that any, anyone who gives today would be out of faith, Lord, they would be out of love um, for you, Father. And here at ESS, we would steward this well, God, and we would put this forth for the kingdom and for the furthering of the gospel. In Jesus' name, we pray and believe these things. Amen. As we begin to close, if anyone has a word for us today, I really encourage you to come forward and share that. But as we talk about this crucifying of Christ, as Romans 8, 28, I just want to close with this. The only reason Jesus came to the cross was because he loved the Father, because he had this love for us that we've talked about. The only way we're going to go to the cross for him is out of love. That we can't do it because we don't should. We can't do it because we just blood, sweat, tears get to it. But the only way we will truly be crucified with Christ is out of his love for us and now our love for him. As we close and we meditate on the scriptures in this worship, um, I just pray that, you, that you'll consider that. And you'll see where is my heart and the love and motivation um, to know and be one out of union with Jesus Christ. So Nat and Joe continue to play. And if you guys have a word or have something you'd like to share, please come up and do so. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be crucified with you. Lord, this union, God, being united with your spirit. Father, I pray that the love of Christ, the power of your Holy Spirit, will really be shown in our hearts, God. You would show light on those things uh, that are holding back, on uh, the things that are, that are stopping us from receiving this love, stopping us to go into the cross. Father, we would have confidence, God, that just like Christ in the midst of the suffering, Lord, that, that He was in the middle of your will, God, during that on the cross, Father, that in our being crucified with you, Father, we wouldn't doubt your love, God, we wouldn't doubt our, the obedience, Father, we wouldn't doubt your will in our life just because of suffering, Lord, but still we would embrace it, God, that, that we would. Dear Father, know we would count that the love and the glory of Christ is far better than anything that we could experience here on earth. Father, so we thank you, God. I thank you for what you're doing here. 
our hearts. And in Jesus' name, we pray and believe these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for being here on this morning. Please stick around. Say hello to somebody, pray for somebody. But we appreciate you guys being here. And hopefully we'll see you guys next week.